The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Where's the world going? It feels dangerous to even try to predict, and yet understanding the future, well, that's a big part of what this show's about. At LinkedIn, we have dozens of journalists who share out news and ideas all year long. I'm proud to be among them. And every year around this time, we draw from all that we've absorbed to come up with a list of predictions for next year. We think this list will make you smarter. Today, I'm going to share five of those ideas. And because these are really informed guesses about what's about to happen, I've invited two friends to chew on these ideas with us. You'll hear from Alison Rosenthal. She was one of the first business people at Facebook, long time ago now. Today, Ali runs Lead Out Capital, an investment firm she founded. Ali gets pitched new ideas every day. You'll also hear from Dave Pell. Dave calls himself the managing editor of the internet. <laughs> I call him that too. Every day, Dave scans all the news, more than 50 sites, to bring us the most important stories in his newsletter, Next Draft. Oh, and Dave just published a book about 2020. It's called, I love this title, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End. So come join us, whoever you are. Listeners, so many of you write. Tanisha, Jason, Adam, Fiona, Kelly. We've left a chair open for you at our table, so come chew on some ideas with us. We think that next year, the four-day work week is going to become a competitive advantage. I have a feeling that once this pandemic completely abates, we're going to see a lot of things return to normal just because of human nature. I've been seeing stories about the effectiveness of a shorter work week for probably the last decade. Um, so it's not actually a new idea, and certainly the advances or what we know how efficient it can be is not new. It just became a bigger story because more people were trying it during the pandemic uh, yeah. by design. But I still have a feeling once it comes back to normalcy of competition, office politics, and just the desire to not miss out on whatever's going on in the office, I have a feeling it's going to look a lot like it did pre-pandemic, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong, too. I want to ask Allie. Allie, what's your bet? First of all, I take issue to the characterization of a four-day work week, in part because our ability to access mobile platforms and cloud infrastructure has enabled us to work from anywhere. So I would actually say many of my entrepreneurs are working harder than they have ever before. I would argue that my work week has gone from kind of five and a half to more like six, where there's one day maybe where I take <laughs> off. Many larger organizations, especially in the technology sector, are thinking about and, and sort of putting into place policies where you're, you're kind of rotating two to three days a week so as to get some of that culture back, um, get some of those sort of spontaneous social interactions that happen pre-meeting, post-meeting, which I think are all good. But, but that said, I think a lot of what has happened since We've all been forced to stay at home, rethink childcare, the infrastructure that we have that supports us or doesn't support us so as to do work from home via glass and screens and cloud infrastructure and, and mobile devices has actually created no, like a significant and sort of severe blurring of the lines between 
work and not work time. Um, and I think that is having ramifications across categories like health, mental health in particular. So I don't know. I think the four the four day work week. I, I sort of agree with Dave. Is, is sort of elusive, but for different reasons. I, I think um, in competitive industries in particular and, and at different stages of, of our lives and our careers, we're prone to work very hard and the technology that has been built and that we have evolved and adapted to use so as to be productive knowledge workers in particular has, um, I think, jammed our work weeks or working even harder. I'm listening to both of you guys and it feels to me like you're both saying variations of something which I believe is true about the four-day work week which is that it's really good marketing, but it's not how people work. The thinking with the four-day work week, which I'm just going to say I think is kind of flawed, is that work will expand and contract to fill the time that you give it. So if all of our bosses say, no, from now on, you have four days instead of five days, their hope may be that you just contract all of that work, same amount of work to fit into four days. And I suspect that maybe human nature, and tell me if you agree with this, is that we'll just work even harder and we won't call that other time work, but we will get it all done regardless of the number of hours you expect us to be in physical seat. What do you think about that? Well, there's definitely been a a few studies in other countries um, that are slightly more sane than we are about work-life balance uh, and everything else, but that's a different topic, uh, that have shown that companies have gotten the same productivity out of their workers if they only have them show up the four days a week or some studies, I think it were even three days a week. So I think people can uh, contract the work. I just, I think there's too many other aspects of human nature that are going to drive this. If it's a broad cultural move to having people work less, that'd be great. But it won't be like that. It'll roll out in bits and pieces. And I think people will be too worried about missing out on stuff happening in the office, sort of like FOMO, but for work stuff as opposed to pleasurable stuff, you know? Well, listen, this brings me to a second prediction, which has to do with hustle culture. So, you know, over the course of the last year in particular, there's been such an emphasis on addressing your mental health at work. But our prediction is actually that hustle culture is going to become more significant than ever, that people are just going to double down and work even harder in 2022. Ali, starting with you on that, what do you think about that one? I wonder if we have the capacity for for that at this point, at least in this country and with the culture that Dave alluded to, the way our society puts an emphasis on entrepreneurialism and work and career, if we're actually physically and emotionally capable of, uh, of kind of working even harder. I was reading an article recently about this this concept. It's, it's called surge capacity, which is our ability to sort of adapt to both mentally, mentally and physically to very stressful situations. You know, I was a professional cyclist for a while and, and have been a lifelong athlete. You kind of have a certain number of matches in you emotionally, mentally, and physically in order to really go hard and adapt to stressful situations. And then you start to sort of need a break. Hopefully in, in returning or uh, to some semblance of the way we did work and the way we hustled prior to remote work and, and being locked down, we will find we have more of a natural and organic ability to sort of push in and out of these intense cycles where we have some dips and ability to sort of have uh, the mental uh, space to, to be creative and innovative. I'm all for hustle culture. I, I think as it relates to um, the way in which people, entrepreneurs in particular, are starting businesses. I also um, am a fan of and hopeful for an, an ability for people to 
be at their most creative, um, maybe their most hustle because they have the opportunity to kind of take a little bit of mental space for, for creativity that it won't, won't be all hustle all the time. So Ali, you're saying yes to hustle culture, but we need to redefine hustle and that the most effective hustle is going to be hustle that involves taking the time out to nourish yourself so that you can be more productive in the end. Yes. Okay. I'll take that. Dave, what do you think? I'm going to go slightly contrarian on the whole idea because I think that when people are confronted by more stress, they are looking for ways to avoid that stress, right? So one way is meditation or relaxation, but those are actually pretty hard ways. It takes a lot of practice to be good enough at meditation to reduce your stress. It takes a lot of hours with the shrink to get to the breakthrough to reduce your stress. I find most people, and at least uh, I can speak for myself, deal with stress by trying to change the subject. During the peak of the pandemic, when there were most life stresses were sort of reaching a high, I probably spent more of my time working than ever before because it's easier to think about those um, external things than it is to think about the internal stress. So I think as people have become more aware of their own stress levels, they'll actually want to escape into work more. People always say, oh, on your deathbed, are you going to be worrying about that one extra deal or that one extra work achievement? It's like, I don't want to think about my deathbed. That's why I'm doing this project right now. Ali and I are both nodding. So clearly we feel you on this one. But it also seems to me like, like what you said is true, that like at the beginning of the pandemic, right, we all just worked harder. We put our nose down and we worked and we worked for all of the reasons, because we were nervous and scared and uncomfortable, but also because it allowed us to avoid everything that was going on around us. And then collectively all at once, kind of culturally, we burnt out. Do you think we can learn anything from that cycle that we could actually apply to the future? Because that that thing that you're talking about, Dave, we, we keep doing that, right? We keep Working really, really hard, most likely to do just what you say and avoid the situation at hand, and then discovering that we can't sustain it and that we feel awful, swinging into anxiety, depression, and burnout, and finding our way back. When do we learn how to just do it right? Either of you can take that one, and you're both sort of looking at me like, I don't know. (laughs) Jesse, what do you mean by finding our way back? Have you found the way back? I'm, I'm still searching for it. I know. There is no way back, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think there may be the opportunity for a lot of the infrastructure um, that supports us or with the potential to support us to evolve, hopefully in a positive way. As a social species, being that isolated, I think, has, has been really, really hard. And when forced to, I totally agree. We've delved into what, what can I control at work? What can I, how can I dive deeper into, um, into the metaverse, whether it's in a work context or an entertainment context so that I don't have to face or deal with some of my own, you know, uh, fears or feelings of isolation or lack of connectedness. And so I I think if finding our way back, it involves, you know, more connection with one another. I'm a fan of in the physical, um, but also, you know, uh, virtually and in healthy in healthy ways, I think will be really important to finding our our way back and, and figuring out the boundaries that have to exist in a world that is in- increasingly enables you to be both dialed in and connected all the time, but significantly more isolated if you're not careful. Right. Yeah. 
Listen, we have two predictions on education. I'll start with the first one, big thoughts or small thoughts. Teachers and parents will both say goodbye to public schools. It does seem like people are rushing to privates. Is that something that you're seeing at all in your communities? I I haven't seen that big of a change. I think people who can afford private sort of migrated there for a variety of reasons in the past, depending on where they lived and the quality of the public education. I think basically anything that divides us further um, is bad news these days, because I think the right now we have a news divide, a political divide, an economic divide. We're divided geographically more than ever. Our kids don't play on the same little league teams anymore because you have the travel team for the people who can afford it and the regular little league for the people who can't. So all these little things add up to this huge divide that creates a vacuum where people who have an interest in having us dislike each other or dislike people who are different or invisible to them, those ideas can flourish when we don't interact with each other. So I hope that's not the case. I hope there's not more homeschooling and I hope there's not uh, even a bigger shift to private. On my side of the political spectrum, it's probably the most under-discussed issue was the school closures and how long they stayed closed. My kids both go to private schools. They were both back within a month or so, maybe two of the initial shutdown, maybe three, um, with heavy testing, very thought out rules about pods, outdoor classes, everything you can think of that could make the situation better, quarantining after there was a positive case. And it all went pretty well. And yet in San Francisco, across the bridge from where I'm sitting right now, um, the kids didn't really get back until the very end of the first school year, if that. Some didn't even get back then. So the frustration I think people have with our public institutions in general is just overflowing onto the way they felt about how the schools handled it. But it's more in your face. You know, you can complain about how the government spends money or how laws do or don't get made around the dinner table, and it's sort of uh, one step removed from your life. But when you're looking across the table in the middle of the day and your kid is yelling at you about their Zoom school, it's like in your face and you're noticing it. So. I really think it's a massive issue. I don't know how it'll play out once the kids are back out in the house and the school is back in session. It is amazing to me, just personally, how our memories are so short. My children are both home this week because we were exposed to COVID over the weekend. So we're observing the quarantine because our kids are too little to be vaxxed. And um, it throws me right back to, you know, April, May, June of 2020 and that like panicked feeling I had needing to figure out how to entertain them all day, every day while working. And the most amazing part of it for me personally is how I have a kind of amnesia about it the way that you do to, I don't know, maybe some traumatic events in your life where I just didn't remember. Maybe in the case of public schools, maybe even though we know it was that bad, um, that collective amnesia will help us to like move forward and return to them. That would be my hope. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we've got another education prediction for you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, T 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. The LinkedIn News team is pretty certain that higher education is long overdue a rethink. We said that we expect to see colleges shift away from campuses and even from four-year degrees. Now, here's Ali's perspective on that. I've listened to Scott Galloway on, on this a whole bunch. He's a professor at NYU and talks a lot about you know, higher education and certain brands as like truly a luxury good. And I do think there'll be this kind of perpetuation uh, of some of the established private colleges and institutions and graduate schools in particular that can con- continue to sort of fund this certificate or, or degree in part as a, as a way to brand yourself um, in society for a career. Uh, that people will continue to seek as a way to get something exclusive, unique, differentiated. Um, I, I teach a, a class at Stanford Business School, and the students, you know, the graduate students were screaming for in-person uh, this past quarter, having taught, you know, several quarters Zoom only. And so I do, I do think there is some longevity there. But agree with you, the general direction of um, the MOOCs, uh, the ability to kind of be entertained and learn a skill by a master. You see, see master class um, kind of growing and, and people kind of using it almost as, you know, as a way to learn, watch a documentary, in fact, and be inspired and, and start to learn skills. And, and maybe that being an entry point to a new career or to a new hobby or pursuit, I think is, is really interesting and, and um, somewhat infinite in its potential for people to kind of take control of, of what they get excited about and, and interested in and pursue it in a way that's um, you know, time efficient, physically efficient, and 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 cost efficient. That said, I do think the Harvards and the Stanfords and some of the elite schools of the world are are themselves businesses and very good at making the case for why there should be sustained demand for what they what they offer. I love that you mentioned Scott Galloway. He's so perceptive in calling out the fact that a school is a brand and that you're you're buying a brand. He also has a digital education startup that he is growing. So Indeed. keep that in mind when he <laughs> sells you on his idea of the future of education. But it sounds to me kind of like what you're talking about is splitting the education experience into a couple of different buckets. Like one is the branding activity that will buy you entrance into a series of elite careers and opportunities. And one is actually just learning new things you need to learn. But Dave, what do you think? Um, my son is almost at the college application stage a couple of years away, but he's thinking about it a lot. And his mom and I spend a lot of time trying to convince him 
how much of what colleges he finds attractive is about the college doing the marketing and that they're selling a product like everybody else. And that it's really not about the name brand. It's about finding a place that's good for you. And, you know, there's a few hundred colleges where you can find good teachers. It's really about finding a place and an environment where you're happy. You know, life is short. But he doesn't listen to that. Uh, the branding <laughs> is pretty strong, coupled with the college admission scandal, which a lot of people were from my neck of the woods. So it's really hard to convince our kids that getting into the right school is not important when people were willing to risk six months in jail to get their kids in schools I don't even like much. But because so much of this is marketing and branding at the university level, it's really going to come down to a sort of a big economic clash of titans between uh, the big tech companies who want a piece of this market and the universities who want to expand their brands and make more money but are going to be pretty concerned about being overtaken or usurped by those tech brands because the universities aren't going to be able to do technically what they need to do to make uh, online education work. So they partner, especially when it was at a crisis moment like the pandemic, they partner with big tech who they brands they know and trust. And, you know, everything my kids do, everything they do is in Google Docs these days or in a Google Classroom, you know, so it's, to me, that's the trend that I find almost more concerning in a society where we have very few companies having an inordinate effect and impact and invasive uh, relationship in our lives. Um, this would be one more, and education is a pretty big one. Dave, I love where you took that. Um, you <laughs> you um, very squarely made a case for why um, I should continue to support universities in order to maintain a balance of power that uh, sort of puts us in a position where big tech doesn't own that too. Um, we have a prediction here that the big big tech will try and fail to own the metaverse. Hey, just jumping in here to say that this idea of the metaverse, it's really new. It's the next big change in technology. First, the internet was on desktops, then it moved to mobile devices, phones, iPads, the software that powers your car. So what comes next? Well, many people believe it's different forms of augmented reality in which we occupy avatars and can participate in digital worlds. And a big question is who will make the tools? Our prediction is that it won't necessarily be big tech companies. I hope you're right. When I read those type of uh, analyses about the future of Web 3.0 and it going back to what we had in mind when we were first uh, building and working on the internet where it would be this distributed um, platform where people would have more equal power and equal voice. I hope that that could come through in this new try. Um, I'm actually pretty dubious about it. One reason is that the same people who made a few billion off of the first rev of the internet are investing in this new version of the internet. So why are they investing in it if it's going to be a distributed platform where nobody has a huge advantage, right? They're investing in it for some reason, right? They want scale again. I'm not exactly sure how they get there, but I'm pretty dubious that uh, this new version of the internet is going to change the relationship between the average person and big tech. We basically ended up building the opposite of what we hoped we were building when it comes to the internet. Everything we hoped, except this, right? Except people 
being able to make their own content and share it and have a somewhat equal playing field uh, to get their voice out there and the indie creators that we're seeing with Substack and different companies that are enabling people to get their voices out there and just on the general internet. But besides that, everything we thought we were building on the internet was the opposite, right? We built just a bunch of super companies that have destroyed countless small businesses and uh, other businesses on the internet. I hope it'll change. I really doubt it though. I really doubt it. That's my most positive spin on this. <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah, I'm hopeful as well, but I, I likewise have some skepticism with respect to the idea that we can eliminate the middleman and enable uh, using distributed ledger and other blockchain technologies, the ability for creators to kind of not have to share in revenue or value creation with the the big uh, you know, big tech today. I'm skeptical that that will actually come to fore. Um, but I, I'm definitely um, spending time, spending time lear learning about it. I mean, I do think um, that blockchain will be more broadly used if we're talking about blockchain as a fundamental underpinning or in infrastructural um, necessity for um, for Web three. Well, so I just want to take a step here. If you don't live and work in Silicon Valley or in tech, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around what we're talking about. So when you say Web3, Ali, how, how do you explain it? In some ways, it's fundamentally about the creation of a, of a new world um, where you can, as a consumer or a, a professional, represent yourself, who you are in, in, different, in different worlds um, that or in different contexts that you can exist in virtually. That can be true from anything from how you consume uh, media, for example, to um, how you work uh, with a team in a professional context. And, um, you know, I think it's less about technology first businesses innovating with software or frontier technology and disrupting traditional um, businesses, but rather kind of creating a brand new world in which we as thinkers and brains can can exist and represent ourselves and then come out of that and then live live our our our, our sort of physical lives, our, our real lives, if you will, in sort of more a traditional identity sense and still leveraging technology. It's the, the, the whole new creation of a virtual world that with new technologies like AR and VR expands and, and um, enhances potentially your experiences, in, but that will be different and separate from, you know, your real life, if you will. In 2003, 2004, when a few people I knew had handheld devices and they worked a little bit, but not great, uh, the idea that one day, like today, I would be able to do 98% of the computing I do on mobile better than I can do it on my laptop, um, that wouldn't have made any sense. I wouldn't have been able to grok it. So here we are in this moment, but I think for a lot of us, we're still back in the second life of 2006, wondering why the pants keep flying off our avatars and why anybody would ever actually use this stuff. Um, so it kind of feels difficult in this moment to explain why this should be relevant even. I will say that I think as you were, as you asked this question and I struggle to explain it, I reached to a couple of things that I read. Uh, I, there's a book uh, a collection of short stories um, by an author named Ted Chang called Exhalation. One of the stories is the life cycle of software objects that envisions someone kind of creating an avatar and actually raising 
avatars as children in a separate world and having many important relationships exist in that world and then bringing them into the real life. So it's helped me sort of imagine what that could be like. And, and I will say also, getting back to the beginning of the podcast, you know, Facebook and Google was all about the corporate campus back then. Uh, it was all about bringing people their haircuts to campus, their bike mechanic to fix campus, bringing all their favorite restaurants to campus and keeping people there to work. Maybe somewhat ironically, but maybe more in the tradition of entrepreneur-led businesses and, and innovation, Facebook is now talking about creating the metaverse, which presumably means a, a more highly immersive but still virtual work network. I think if you're not in Silicon Valley or in the center of this, there there is the question of what is this? So Dave, I want to give you a chance on that one. Sure. I mean, I've had a little bit of experience with the blockchain in the last week, but through my son, you know, I think I feel how my parents felt when when I got into the internet, you know, um, what are you talking about? What is it? How does it work? I've been investing in internet startups for about 30 years when I still can't do a very good job if you ask me to explain it right now what it is. Um, so I find it all pretty confusing, but I did find this experience interesting with my son and that he wanted to buy an NFT. That's what he wanted for a Hanukkah, which sounded great to me because it required no shopping on my part. <laughs> but I transferred some money so he could purchase it into his um, green light card, which is like a parent cash card that kids can use uh, and parents can control, but they wouldn't take that to buy the NFT. And then he tried to use my debit card and that didn't work either. And so then he was having the site send me notices into my bank account uh, saying to confirm my identity. And at some point I just said, you know, this is too much risk for your 10x return on 300 bucks, you know? So he was pretty pissed, but we canceled that application. But it occurred to me that, you know, who was controlling that transaction ultimately, you know, Visa, Bank of America, the same people who controlled the transactions before the internet, the same people who are making the rules about whether you can spend your money on gambling sites or elsewhere, you know, the same people who lobbied against certain types of sites being illegal so that they could hold all the cards. You know, that still is yeah. the game. So can somebody get around that game? I, I really wonder. And then I think in some ways, the, uh, the season finale of Succession, you know, that storyline all came down to market cap. You know, whether it's real or fake, market cap drives so much um, of who runs what in this world. And this week we saw that uh, Nike just bought an NFT company that designs and sells basically virtual shoes for the metaverse eventually, but for now just to own these digital shoes, much like people collect regular shoes, right? And we roll our eyes, but it's like if some of us collect the hard copy versions, why won't our kids want to collect them in digital versions if they're unique, you know? But 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 Nike's gonna sell that product, you know, Nike is gonna make that product uh understandable to the parents, not mm -hmm. that little company. And they can do that because their their market cap is huge enough that it's a rounding error for them to buy this company once it gets going. Right. And that's sort of the name of the game in tech development these days. So as long as those market caps exist in that way, and the companies that really become huge or join big tech will be the ones that somehow can go Joe, uh, Microsoft or Google by ha somehow achieving a higher market cap. Meanwhile, you'll 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 still be in your son's bedroom trying to figure out how to buy an NFT at all. Oh, he doesn't <laughs> allow me in his bedroom, but yes, we do text each other from my bedroom to his bedroom. I said it at the top, and it's true. 
Allie and Dave are thoughtful people. They both make their living from ideas, specifically identifying new ideas early. And so before we finish, I've asked each of them to make one prediction of their own about the future. In addition to hoping to see and and funding more what we call non-obvious founders, founders who are objectively diverse and whose lived experience uh, we think gives give them a core insight about um, an opportunity to create a ton of value with software in in a large end market, I I think we will see more um, gender diverse teams get funding and more um, more objectively diverse teams will get funding as more and more funds come to market uh, to back founders whose lived experience in a market will give them an edge. In addition to that, I, I, I am hoping that we uh, see green policies fueling what a researcher named Carlotta Perez talks about in what is a continued golden age um, of technology innovation, not only because there's real value to be created and captured, but it's vital to our future as a planet. So a prediction is more of that will happen in conjunction with government spend. And uh, in hopefully we'll see some great software-driven innovation as well as frontier uh, tech developed to address climate. Well, I'll share that prediction, first of all, that climate and world positive investments are going to be huge in 2022. Now, there's a lot more players in that space. And what's promising is that they're doing well and at times even better than uh, the VCs that aren't focused at all on world positivity. My older sister uh, has a, a investment that just she only does world positive companies on the public market, and it's totally crushed anything anybody else in our family has done. So, my what's other, a positive company, Dave? Define it for us. I mean, a positive company is something as a company that just has some aspect of it that is world positive. It's just not all about the bottom line, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and a company that, when given the choice between um, the PNL sheet and something that might be net negative for society will not choose to make the profit in that case. Like we've all been disappointed to see Facebook make the wrong decision in a lot of cases. And that sort of segues into my prediction, which is more of a hope than a prediction. But I, what I really want to see starting in 2022 and hopefully moving into the future is that companies are rewarded for decent behavior. The stock market is completely um, arbitrary, really. It's just demand and supply, and the valuations aren't necessarily based on reality. There's just so much luck involved with valuations and all that. So if it's so arbitrary that a small company that has a hundred thousand cars in the market can be worth a hundred times more than a company, a car company that has a million cars in the market, then why can't we make one of those variables be positivity? Why can't we reward companies? in terms of buying their stocks when they do things that are not just good for their bottom line, but good for us as people and members of the broader community. If, if, if stocks were more based exactly on your profit and loss, it would be impossible. But because they're not, they're based so much on perception. Yeah, I just think it's possible if big banks get involved and we all have skin in the game, you know, the climate game, the COVID game, you know, let's reward companies that do good things for society. Because if we don't solve the climate issue, Web 3.0 is not going to be much fun if we're all burning to death, you know, or freezing to death. So that's what my my prediction is, but it's more of a hopeful prediction than a true prediction. That was Alison Rosenthal and Dave Pelt. And please do yourself a favor and check out Dave's new book. It's called Please Scream Inside Your Heart. 
It's a wonderful read. Now our year is wrapping up very soon. And so our producer, Sarah Storm, and I, well, we've been talking a lot about what we want the next year of Hello Monday to be. For us and for you, our listeners. So this is your personal invitation to join us for Office Hours this week. We're going to share this vision and get your feedback. So join us on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And as always, please rate and review the show. It helps us a ton. Maybe you haven't got around to it because you're just not the kind of listener who takes the time to do these things. But here's the thing. Those ratings help us get found, and that makes our show so much better. So please, if you haven't done it, do it right now. So easy. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor predict great things for our 2022. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel, wishing you very happy holidays of all sorts. We'll be back with you in the new year. Thanks for listening. Dave, I have a quick question for you, and then I'm going to hit stop. How does one become the managing editor of the internet? Uh, you just self-appoint yourself, and then after a while, people just start to say it. Cool.